from the lower class over time will become uh, cognitively incapable of understanding what AI is doing to them and how it's molding their opinions and will become dependent on AI um, for everything and will not really be able to function without it or even make their own decisions and, and know their own preferences. Welcome, everybody, to this Peak Prosperity Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Martinson. Today, we are speaking with the author of Nation Under Blackmail and a main contributor to the UnlimitedHangout.com website and a guest who's been on the program before, the one, the only, the inestimable and very smart Whitney Webb, possibly the greatest dot-connecting investigative journalist of our times. Wow, Whitney, hey, welcome back to the program. Uh, great to be here. What a flattering introduction. Thank you. <laughs> I meant every word of it, and uh, I'd like to start at the top if we could. I, I like to work from the top down or sure. outside in. Burning question. The burning question to set all this up is, we're up against the plots. Uh, are we up against the plots of evil geniuses, or are we suffering under the tyranny of midwits, you know, doing the best they can, but leading us to ruin? That is, how much of what we're experiencing in your estimation today is intentional, and how much is accidental? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I tend to view most of what's going on as intentional, and I, I think um, they mm -hmm. use uh, the perception of what they're doing as incompetence as a way to cover up for um, uh, their crimes a lot of the time. So I think ultimately what, what we're seeing is an effort to sort of herd the world towards what I would refer to as a neo-feudal model. So sort of going back to the same concentration of power uh, that existed in, in the feudal era, or the dark ages of Europe, as it were, um, where you sort of have kings mm -hmm. and you have sort of their enforcer class and then you have a you know, large serf underclass. And that the goal is to have basically those, um, those strata, the differences between them enforced by technology. Um, and um, I think a key component of that is the efforts to control the flow of information because in that era, right, the, the church uh, dominated the flow of information and knowledge and a lot of this was later, you know, spread around and distributed to the surf class through the printing press and things like that. And now in modern iterations, the Internet. And in order to bring things back to the neo-feudal era, the powers that be have to take complete control of the Internet and the flow of information. And I think that's why we're seeing this increased push um, of censorization and also to have, um, you know, AI chat, uh, generative AI that they produce end up producing the lion's share of the content online. You know, those two things. I think go together in order to sort of manufacture reality so that we're more easily controlled and herded into these various systems that they're setting up that will like maintain the vast majority of the populace in this surf underclass. And a lot of the um, big establishment thinkers on AI have pretty, pretty much talked openly about how that technology is being used to create sort of the, the upper class the kings of the the data barons, I guess, of, of the modern era, as opposed to the oil barons of, of previous eras, and how you know the people that control the data that AI trains on, and the people that program and maintain AI will be sort of in this upper class, and that AI will act upon uh, the lower class, and the lower class over time will become uh, cognitively incapable of understanding what AI is doing to them, and how it's molding their opinions, and will become dependent on AI. Um, 
for everything and will not really be able to function without it or even make their own decisions and, and know their own preferences uh, without it. And you know, this was laid out in, by people like uh, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt, Henry Kissinger, you know, figures of, mm -hmm. of that variety openly talking about how this is where uh, this technology is, is taking us. Now, that's a fascinating summary because uh, this is sort of the edges of what I've been poking around at for a while here, which is that, I mean, once upon a time, you had to keep slaves. And, and that was a problem because they ran away and you're responsible for feeding them their medical care. It was a problem. And then debt-based money came along and surprise, people became their own slaves and slave masters. It was awesome. Um, very good. I'm wondering if we aren't seeing this transition now from old money. What's the new currency? It's information. If you can convince people of this narrative that you want them to be convinced of, and you can do that really powerfully, maybe subtly, maybe understanding neurochemistry, biology, pathways wiring. Yeah, so I think information is absolutely cr uh, crucial to developing this neo-feudal model, uh, precisely because um, if they can manipulate human, uh, how humans perceive reality, they can fundamentally shape human behavior. And I think that's really the ultimate um, goal of this. And I think, you know, during the COVID era, for example, that was a big uh, boon for them in terms of like the lockdowns and all of that, because people weren't interacting so much um, with the real world. They were instead interacting with the online world chiefly, uh, which they can manipulate more effectively and essentially um, create realities that don't necessarily exist and convince people that that's what's happening uh, and manipulate uh, trust also. And um, as I'm sure you and your audience are aware, the big theme at like the World Economic Forum for the past several years, including this year, has been rebuilding trust and how to uh, claim trust uh, or reclaim trust uh, among the people who have sort of, to varying extents, gotten wise to this um, this essentially big power grab uh, that's happening on the part of the elite right now. So narrative management is a big part of it. And the internet has been an issue for them in that regard, um, in, in terms of allowing whoever, uh, you know, anyone to publish uh, information or read, you know, in, and for people to read that information, hence the increased efforts to not just censor, but also have them through AI produce the lion's share of, of content. And I think it's been said now that ChatGPT and generative AI like it is going to be responsible for like 90% of content online by 2025, which is, you know, a year from now. Um, so obviously those, those agendas are marching forward quite quickly. And I'm sure as the 2024, uh, U S presidential election approaches, there will again be unprecedented censorship efforts that even the pro free speech, uh, platform owned by Elon Musk X, formerly Twitter has embraced as have, you know, the legacy, more legacy social media platforms that don't take that, uh, you know, free speech posturing. Uh, like Facebook and and Google and, and what have you. So I think, you know, we'll see a, a renewed push uh, for that for the purpose of uh, narrative control, because it's very likely that the 2024 election is going to be, um, you know, contentious because essentially the um, uh, the dynamics for that have been set up over the past two U.S. presidential elections. Uh, essentially, the side that loses, regardless of if it's Democrats or Republican, are going to contest the results. And there's obviously going to be, you know, issues there and the potential for either a January 6th equivalent among Democrats or, you know, uh, a, a supposed repeat of what they hoped January 6th would turn into. Because in my opinion, that was an event that they... Um, 
really essentially a, a false flag to sort of push through the the domestic terror narrative. And even with all those efforts there, it didn't really stick because, you know, the there was not really a, a very small death count there. And despite the comparisons to try and link January 6th in the public mind to 9-11, you know, after that event took place, it, it didn't end up sticking that way. But I think, um, you know, over the course of this year, it's very possible that, that there will be some events and crises, they will try to frame that way. Um, and I think at the end of the day, the solution that will be offered to the public is going to be, you know, a regulated internet, increased control over internet, the end of uh, the ability to have anonymity or privacy online, which of course is going to tie into the um, broader efforts to eliminate financial privacy as well. Yeah. How do you go about distinguishing between a false flag and what I might call a real or an organic event? Um. <clears throat> Well, I, I I would say that it probably depends on uh, the event you're talking about. You know, in the case of January 6th, there were real people there for a rally and there were various um, actors that were trying to make people think it was acceptable and, and legal for them to enter the Capitol grounds at, at that point. So, you know, uh, that was obviously orchestrated, not on the sense of the the people, uh, the Trump supporters that were, you know, let into the Capitol, uh, but on the part of those that did the letting in and the, and, you know, on the part of either Capitol police or other figures, informants, what have you, that were like in the crowd posing to be Trump supporters and, and whatnot, that obviously suggests that there was some uh, intentionality for things to develop that particular way for a particular purpose being the dissemination of this narrative about Trump supporters and domestic terrorism, which was foreshadowed essentially a year before where um, a top figure at DHS said that Trump supporters would do exactly that um, in front of Congress and saying that DHS could see it building and couldn't quite stop it, which if you're as cynical as me, essentially amounts to them saying uh, that we're going to create the conditions for this exact thing to happen. Yeah, my my one of my rule sets is if within 24 hours of the event, there is lockstep talking points that went through some sort of obvious focus grouping, <laughs> you know, yeah. right. Yeah. Insurrection, insurrection, insurrection. It was an insurrection right away, you know, and mm -hmm. that was just blanketed because that's one of the things they do. They do that blanket uh, coverage, which just sort mm -hmm. of creates that narrative framework right away, whereas Remember, I don't know if you remember, um, but I remember the D.C. snipers, Malvo and this other guy, right? Nobody knew what was happening. It was confusing. There were many narratives. They had wrong pictures of cars like it was all confusing. But but when you get that crisp narrative right away, you know, yeah. sometimes even before the event, oh, building seven fell down, you know, like before it did. Right. It's like mm -hmm. one of those moments makes me just go, hmm, might not be entirely <laughs> organic. <laughs> yeah. And then the other factor here in terms of the, the AI era in which we are stepping into is the potential for um, AI generated people to say things they didn't actually say or for events, you know, through this whole deep fake thing uh, to suggest that, you know, uh, certain realities uh, exist when in fact they do not, uh, which is, you know, a whole different layer uh, to all of this uh, for sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure is going to be very heavily heavily weaponized, which is, again, why I think it's important for people to engage uh, just as much in offline discourse as online discourse, just because if you are purely online and they are taking increased control of the virtual world, um, you're going to increasingly receive uh, data and information that they are manipulating for their purposes. 
And I think right now we're seeing more of that than we <laughs> we truly ever have. Uh, so, yeah. you know, being offline and engaging with people and seeing how things really are outside of the online world, I think is uh, more important than it's ever been. Yeah, I unfortunately consume a lot online because it's the nature of my job. And I find Likewise. I have to get out <laughs> hazard, occupational hazard. And I'm worried that I'm being controlled. I'm worried that as sophisticated as I am, like I know that Twitter is shot through with bots and they've gotten increasingly sophisticated. They look mm -hmm. and sound like real people, mm -hmm. right? And just watching how they shape, they don't always just come out and go, you know, Chris, you ignorant human, right? They, they, they're very subtle. And I, it's not, I think that it's sophisticated enough that I am personally targeted. And I think everybody is to some extent because Absolutely. there's a, there's a file. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I definitely think that is what's happening. I think they have very individualized profiles on people that in part have been produced by, by AI and some of these big data mining firms that work for intelligence agencies like Palantir. And, and the goal of that is to basically, you know, uh, the military and all of these groups, uh, knowing that we, we know that they've invested millions of dollars in building essentially bot armies that are used to conduct influence operations. And we know they also do that uh, against the domestic populace. And that, uh, you know, this was legally legalized under the Obama era. They lifted the domestic propaganda ban and all of these other things with the NDAA or one of the NDAAs in the Obama era. And all of that can be pointed at the U.S. populace domestically uh, for the purpose of advancing, you know, what these guys say is in the U.S.'s national interest. But increasingly it's in, you know, either the deep state or the, the power elite's best interest, which tends to be uh, from preventing any sort of real change uh, from happening that would lessen their power or prevent us from, you know, going even further down this, this path that we are on. So, um, you know, I definitely think it's, um, you know, open season for psyops in a way it never has been. And, you know, what I worry too um, in, in this particular sphere is that there's an increased effort because of their efforts to regain trust. What they're seeking to do is sort of to co-opt um, or use uh, or, or lend people that don't deserve it anti-establishment clout uh, so that they can essentially act like they're going to deliver the change that people want. Uh, but they'll be delivering the same policies that their their bases, their political bases are against, whether that's digital ID or programmable, surveillable money um, or or things of, of that nature, while claiming that they're against those things. You know, as an example, with like central bank digital currencies, um, there's also mm -hmm. a dual effort by commercial banks to issue commercial bank digital currencies, which are also CBDCs under the guy uh, under the names of deposit tokens or bank issued stable coins. And so, you know, maybe. Figures like Trump and Ron DeSantis and some of these other figures have, you know, said, oh, we, if we're elected or in power, uh, there will be no central bank digital currency. Uh, but are they against, um, you know, JP Morgan issuing, uh, you know, uh, deposit tokens or stable coins that are just as programmable and surveillable as what, you know, the central bank could issue? And is that really any better for prosperity and liberty of Americans? Uh, you know, is it better to be surveilled by Wall Street and have them program your money than it is to have the Fed? You know, uh, quite frankly, not, especially when you consider that people like Jamie Dimon, uh, for example, have come out on record saying they think private property should be seized in order to meet, you know, UN climate goals and things of that nature. It's really ultimately the same thing at the end of the day. And so I think we're going to see, you know, various efforts to try and herd people into the same system. But in order to have that happen, they have to, um, 
convince people that the initiatives they're supporting are actually against uh, this control grid to an extent so, by giving it different names and different um, appearances, but ultimately it, it'll it's fundamentally the same. Now you mentioned a while ago that, that one of the things they fear is sort of the uncontained chaos of individual humans having a point of view and not doing exactly what they want them to do at all times. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised by, if we could, I, I like my fractal metaphors, um, and this was a big one, was the Canadian trucker protest, right? Hong mm -hmm. Kong, you know? And um, we saw there that the banks, TD, RBS, all of them went gleefully along with a completely illegal program to seize mm -hmm. and freeze people's assets, their bank accounts, right? And in this modern world, if your bank account gets frozen, and you can't pay your mortgage on time or your car payment, you're out. You can't buy food. I mean, it's just, it's the mark of the beast, right? Uh, in, in sort of biblical terms. So as they say in my community, never go full Canadian. Um, what what happened to Canada in that moment? Are they a test bed or did they go authentically, you know, nuts? No, I think uh, the same policies we saw enacted in Canada during that point of time are being piloted around the world. Um, a good example of this would be um, a public-private partnership managed by the World Economic Forum called the Partnership Against Cybercrime, uh, which involves um, the FBI, the Secret Service, and the Department of Justice are all members, and they're essentially pursuing these same um, related efforts to uh, clamp down on what they define as illicit financial activity under the guise of being it being cybercrime. But they also say, for example, in their documentation that people that publish misinformation online can be deemed cyber criminals, have their finances seized and, and things of this nature. And um, obviously that's very concerning uh, going forward. And a lot of these um, uh, entities propose that banks uh, work directly with intelligence agencies and essentially fuse their operations as it relates to information sharing and analysis. Um, and this is obviously um, an insane overreach, but it's already happening. For example, uh, Bank of America is a member of that that same partnership against cybercrime with the FBI. And on January 6th, Bank of America shared illegally, really, uh, bank uh, bank activity details with the FBI and, and Secret Service uh, so they could go and, and arrest people that were there on January 6th. So they're already doing that kind of collusion and they're involved in these partnerships that are not technically overseen by anything involving the U.S. government, but parts of the U.S. government are members. It's one of these global public-private partnerships. And in that particular uh, group is, is very concerning for another reason in that they say that one of the ways they need to meet their objectives is by doing things that are currently not uh, legal, that they may need to go beyond things that are currently deemed legal in order to meet their objectives. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is very telling. But that's essentially where mm -hmm. um, where we stand with a lot of these commercial banks. Uh, and really, historically, you know, for example, if you look at the rise of U.S. intelligence, you know, Wall Street was always an important part of that story. Uh, for example, the Dulles brothers, Alan Dulles, one of the most well-known era um, CIA directors of the early CIA era uh, is from Sullivan and Cromwell, which is a big Wall Street law firm, for example. And there's been various uh, CIA connections with banks, some of the biggest banks over the years. And it's um, uh, essentially what we're seeing is an effort to really fuse a lot of these different things together, bring together Wall Street uh, banking regulators and um, 
yeah, Wall Street banking regulators and intelligence agencies. And this was actually laid out by the Carnegie Endowment, uh, the head of uh, which was run at the time by uh, William Burns, who is now CIA director under Biden. Uh, and the, the chair of uh, the Carnegie Endowment is, uh, I believe it's Penny Penny Pritzker, who's essentially responsible for Obama's career and like a big influencer in uh and, and big bundler for, uh, you know, the Democrats specifically. Um, and they essentially gamed out with the World Economic Forum and some of the biggest central and commercial banks in the world, um, how a cyber attack on the financial system uh, would necessitate this fusion of, of these different entities. Um, so we'll see what happens. There has been a lot of talk of um, you know, different cyber attacks happening this year um, from the WEF and from other entities. And what better way for, you know, the financial system, which is sort of on its way to uh, ruin anyway, to absolve themselves of any wrongdoing and point the finger at faceless hackers and then come back as this, you know, newly created financial, uh, you know, completely digitized, um, you know, financial sector that's openly sharing information with, you know, intelligence agencies and all of that for our security. You know, there's a lot of different initiatives that have been happening in the space for years, and they seem to all kind of be pointing um, in the same place, which ultimately at the end of the day is, is centralized power and uh, the end of privacy and specifically financial privacy. Now, I'm going to wish them all the luck in the world rebuilding trust, because um, <laughs> as, as 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 South Africa found to, to move past a, a breach like that, you have you need truth and reconciliation with truth being a critical part. You can't skip the truth part, right? Looks like they yeah. just want to skip over the truth part because yes. you know I first reported May 4th, 2020, that this virus came out of a lab. I don't know which one. I never went that far and I never said, was it accidental or intentional? But I can tell you it came out of a lab. The genetic signature was there. It was clear cut, right? Ooh, I got trashed, you know, for, you know, uh, I, I fell afoul of the mis, dis and malinformation Nazi police right there on YouTube and all that. Right. So, so, yeah. um, but, but they're, they want to seem to skip over the part, which is like, yeah. Uh, we did create that thing somehow, you know, and I'm pretty sure it was Ralph Barrick um, at UNC was the the progenitor of that. You know, the godfather of this whole thing. Canada was involved. China was involved. There was like people were involved, uh, but mm -hmm. they want to skip over that. I don't think we're going to they're going to be able to rebuild trust. They can try and ram trust down our throats and tell us we have to trust them and punish us when we don't seem to trust them enough. But I don't think they're going to be able to rebuild trust. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think so with the current establishment, but this is where I, what I worry about in terms of what I mentioned earlier, um, when with figures that they have framed increasingly as anti-establishment, that when push comes to shove, uh, when sorry, yeah. uh, when push comes to shove, they end up serving the establishment anyway. So you know, uh, Trump, I think, sort of falls in that category. Uh, in the sense that his campaign rhetoric in you know the 2016 election and how he ended up governing, there are drastic differences there. And mm -hmm. I think the same uh, is true for his rhetoric this time and, and what is likely to happen um, if and when he uh, returns to the White House. Um, you know, people seem to have forgotten. Um, his defense and role in things like Operation Warp Speed, um, and he has not come clean about that uh, or his role in, you know, early lockdowns mandates, uh, how his administration created a pre-crime program at the Department of Justice called DEEP that was later weaponized against his own supporters and will likely be weaponized against his supporters in the future. Um, him putting people like John Bolton in as national security advisors after campaigning on being an anti-neocon. Um, 
being framed by his supporters as not having started any new wars, but there were several attempts to uh, do coups in places like Venezuela and, and elsewhere, which obviously is not going to solve things like the migrant issue in the Americas, many of whom come from Venezuela. Obviously, a coup there would probably, in violence, would you know lead to more disruption, among other things. Uh, the wall was not built, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think you know people assume, especially because of the um, uh, how he has seemingly regained a lot of this anti-establishment credibility um, in the in recent months because of the efforts to remove him from the ballot um, and, and things like that. Um, but is that necessarily deserved? Again, I think people really need to remember the difference when it comes to politicians specifically between campaign rhetoric and governing, because uh, increasingly... Uh, when Trump was in power, he uh, defaulted to other people around him, uh, specifically people that weren't uh, in cabinet posts, even like Jared Kushner and his daughter Ivanka, uh, for example, uh, and putting in people like William Barr, who's a career CIA mop up man uh, in the role of attorney general. And, uh, you know, can our th I think things are so uh, dire at this point that can we really hope that Trump will be different this time around? Uh, you know, that's essentially, um, you know, some of the concerns I have. And when, um, if there is a big crisis, you know, similar to the COVID event, uh, and Trump is in the White House again, can we trust him not to respond in the way that they want him to, doing something equivalent to Operation Warp Speed again? Um, you know, frankly, I think, um, they're the the power elite in the United States are, have consistently been very concerned with a conservative right because you know they have the lion's share of gun ownership in the United mm -hmm. States. So in order to I, you know I don't think they're under a democratic administration ever going to go and try and take the guns. What they want is that a significant segment of the population to be acquiescent and compliant. And the best way to do that is to make them think that they have won. So I have to go here because you mentioned William Barr, and of course he covered up the Epstein murder. And my training, mm -hmm. my background is a, I'm a pathologist. So to have the hyoid bone in three easy pieces, two fractures, I couldn't find any case records where that happened due to hanging, especially not a slump hanging. Um, so yeah. that, I mean, that much was clear. Now, this was exciting to me, actually, because for the first time I saw Epstein didn't kill himself like as a trending thing and young people got it. It almost felt like they were in danger of losing control of that story. And I think they did. For a significant yeah. number of people are like, yeah, no, he didn't kill himself or he was killed. And then it was covered up and that was covered up. I need to remind people by the Trump administration. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. you wrote the book One Nation Under Blackmail. It is the Epstein. Obviously, my framing is I think that uh, seems clear. He was involved in creating control files. These are this is part of blackmail. Mm -hmm. said, mm -hmm. was, was that like a little piece or was that a big piece of the overall structure of blackmail, do you think? How pervasive well, is this? So, you know, blackmail is definitely a thing that has happened. But I think in the modern era, specifically post 2000, the model of sex blackmail that Epstein has been public has become publicly known for is no longer practiced. I think it's entirely digital. Um, mm. And that is why you saw people like Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein 
particularly after he was arrested the first time in 2006, 2007, uh, move very much into the world of Silicon Valley. So essentially, every Silicon Valley oligarch of significance has either an Epstein or Ghislaine Maxwell, Maxwell tie that is very direct and very significant. Um, you had both Google co-founders, Elon Musk, and I believe other uh, tech people as well, uh, subpoenaed as part of the Epstein JP Morgan case that was settled before it could go to trial. Um, and Larry Page essentially disappeared off the planet in order to not be served that subpoena. Uh, Jeff Bezos uh, had a very close relationship with Ghislaine Maxwell, for example. If you have a backdoor into the tech infrastructure everyone uses, you have a backdoor into all of their data and their communications, you can probably find something in there that you can use to blackmail people. And if not, you can uh, put something that isn't theirs on there and then blackmail them saying you found uh, compromising information or porn or something on their computer. Um, there's a, It opens up a whole different way to compromise people. And I think it's much uh, lower risk for intelligence agencies than what Epstein used to do. And it's a lot less money for them because you don't have to pay someone to maintain this mansion or this island where they can put you know, influential targets at ease, have these big parties and, and all of these things where young girls are are present. Um, so I definitely think in, in the modern era, blackmail is all of, related to data uh, and, uh, you know, personal data and uh, Silicon Valley uh, control of, of that data, essentially. Um, in earlier eras, obviously, sex blackmail was a big part of it, but there was also financial blackmail. There's many different types of blackmail that intelligence agencies have historically used, uh, sex blackmail being perhaps the most salacious of those, uh, but certainly mm -hmm. not the only one. And, um, I think in terms of Epstein's career trajectory, uh, sure, obviously the sex blackmail and sex trafficking thing was a component of it, but you know, roughly for half of his operational uh, or, or time where he was, you know, active, um, you know, uh, doing in his career really, which if you view him as an actor for in you know intelligence and what have you, it, it, it spanned you know several decades and roughly one decade was devoted to the sex blackmail stuff, among other things, because it also coincided with various other influence operations that seemed to tie into uh, what he was actually most active in, which were financial markets. Jeffrey Epstein uh, was not a career sex blackmailer, though those have existed in U.S. history. Jeffrey Epstein was really more of a uh, a career uh, financial terrorist and tax fraudster um, and involved in a lot of um, insane financial crime um, and in money laundering, allegedly for banks in the 80s that included BCCI. Uh, while he was at Bear Stearns uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, he was involved uh, with uh, the power elite and tax schemes some of which eventually got him uh, fired from there, but he continued his business links and sort of became uh, intimately involved in the world of shadow banking. His main patron, Leslie Wexner, in the late 80s was very involved with Bank One, uh, which later, uh, you know, through after some mergers became JP Morgan. And obviously the world around Wexner and some of his close associates who were also business associates of Jeffrey Epstein are responsible for Jamie Dimon being head of JP Morgan, which I think is part of where the JP Morgan Epstein relationship comes from. And part of the reason I think they wanted to settle that case and not have it go to trial among other things. So, um, 
Jeffrey Epstein, and you can look this up because there's been stories written about it, also had a very unusual role in the collapse of Bear Stearns in 2008, uh, which some people have described as an execution uh, of that bank. And it was really, if you you know believe that narrative, and I think the data supports that, uh, the pin that popped Bear Stearns was Jeffrey Epstein asking for his money back from a very overleveraged fund. Again, there's all this um, you know, information you can find if you if you go and, and look for it. And oddly enough, at that point in time, Epstein had moved away from Bear Stearns being his main bank to JP Morgan being the main bank and who picks up the remnants of Bear Stearns for pennies on the dollar, JP Morgan. Very interesting. Um, and you have a lot of involvements, you know, again with Silicon Valley and financial stuff with Epstein going uh going forward. And I think that's why uh traditionally, or not traditionally, sorry, but um in recent years, efforts to pursue Sue Epstein and the bank relationship, even as it relates to his sex trafficking, have been much harder. I mean, yeah, maybe people don't remember anymore, but a few years ago, uh, the son of a judge that was overseeing the Epstein Deutsche Bank case was murdered in her family home. Yes. Um, and that's some... Um, you know, I think would send a pretty big message, uh, depending on how you feel about it, um, because the assailant had some very uh, interesting ties that I've, I've written about previously. Um, and of course, this JP Morgan case ended up uh, just, you know, being settled and not actually going to trial. And there were these, um, af but after the case was filed, you know, Biden makes a, a visit to the USVI, and then their attorney general is fired, um, and all of these things happening. So I think, you know, the, uh, they want to avoid the, uh, an inquiry, a, a true and honest and open inquiry into Epstein and financial markets because it would um, open up a lot of uh, malfeasance that I think they've tried to cover up. Well, isn't that the basics of investigative journalism since Deep Throat, right? Follow the money, right? I've never seen the money followed, at least in any major publication. And it seems like the easiest, most simple. I mean, this guy had tens of millions yeah. of dollars. Where did they come from? Seems like it shouldn't be that hard of a question. And you, you know, you could follow that and, and probably find some interesting stuff. But uh, mm -hmm. I've never seen a, a, a decent accounting yet. There, there's no there's no interest in it, frankly. I mean, they'll 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 talk how most of it came from Leslie Wexner, but there's no there's no interest in investigating Leslie Wexner at all, which I think is very significant. As I mentioned earlier, he was very involved in Bank One, which you know even before it merged with J.P. Morgan was one of the big one of the two big to fail banks of prior mm -hmm. eras, um, and had a, a, you know its role in Iran Contra, even among other things. Um, and uh, definitely a lot of interesting things going on in Wexner world, who has, you know, been along with Epstein, one of the main philanthropic forces, uh, donating to leadership courses at Harvard that's directly affiliated with the WEF Young Global Leaders Program, <laughs> among mm -hmm. other things. Um, yeah. And, you know, has focused a lot of his philanthropy on, you know, training future leaders and all of this who, you know, of course, are trained and instilled with the values of whatever Wexner wants them to be. Um among other things. And I think also um, one of the reasons they declined to pursue this is because it, it um, will, it, it leads you to a very interesting nexus of power that involves uh, figures like Robert Maxwell, Ghislaine Maxwell's father, who Jeffrey Epstein in many ways is very similar to in terms of uh, being a very adept financial criminal. And then one of his close lawyers and confidants, Samuel Pisar, who these days is probably best known for being the stepfather in person who raised Anthony Blinken, the current secretary of state. Um, 
Samuel P. Sar in the early 70s uh, testified before Congress about what he called the rise of the trans ideological corporation, where he said that the uh, corporate uh, leaders of the United States and the West uh, were essentially forging partnerships with the individuals in the communist bloc countries who ran state owned enterprises um, in Russia and China, et cetera, and that they were uh, coming together to create the trans ideological corporation, uh, which was essentially a means of achieving global governance, but not by creating, you know, uh, something like a beefed up United Nations, instead by creating um, a essentially a college of corporations and companies that exerted global financial and economic governance and had more power than any nation state. And essentially talks about this model uh, heralding the end of the nation state. And that he said this directly to Congress in the early 70s. And various affiliations of peace are Maxwell and others is uh, is obviously related to um, pursuing those ends over the next several decades. And a big a key theme that PSAR outlined to Congress about this was the idea of technology transfer, uh, doing big technology transfers from the West to the East in order to sort of economically equalize and, and redistribute things. And uh, if you look at Maxwell uh, and PSAR and also Epstein's involvement with the Clinton White House uh, as part of the uh, Chinagate scandal, uh, tech transfers have been going on for a very long time. And um, this particular nexus has an outsized influence over the deep state of Israel, which is often used uh the special relationship it has with the U.S. in terms of military technology to acquire that technology and then pass it off to uh, China and adversary nations of the United States. And this is a documented thing. Uh, you even had the CIA raise concerns about it in the early 90s, pre-China Gate and all of this, but really it... Um, it got out of control at, at a certain point. And then you have, you know, all these efforts to outsource American industry to these same countries to create this global system of interdependence uh, that's essentially managed by these economic, uh, interconnected economic entities that are running the world um, and in the banks, among other things. And um, it's it, it's definitely very interesting to study, and I think more people should definitely look at, um, you know, Samuel Pisar and, and Maxwell in terms of their influence on this. But from my research on it, it involves organized crime, not just the United States, but around the world in Eastern Europe, uh, in Japan and China, you know, essentially um, an effort to sort of court, you know, uh, organized crime and intelligence agencies around the world to sort of buy into this this model. And I think that's part of um, definitely part of the story of, of Epstein helps explain uh, who he was blackmailing people for and what uh, a lot of the purposes of his activities and financial markets ultimately were. Now, I'm trying to piece all this together. A week and two days ago, I was four hours up a river in the jungle of, of Panama at the Darien Gap and at the Canaan uh, Membrio camp, watching people come out of the jungle for the first time. And, and it becomes immediately apparent there's a lot of money. There were 61 NGOs there. Um, these poor mm -hmm. people are encouraged to take this very perilous trek, which kills actual percentages of them, you know, to try yeah. and make this trek. Mm -hmm. And and the question is, like, well, why don't they just fly them straight into LAX or something? Like, why force these people to go through this? And you talk to these NGOs and, and they said stuff like, oh, this is settled science for them. Oh, migration is a good thing. And it helps to equalize because you mentioned this equalization. And this is mm -hmm. one of their stated things they want to equalize. But when I think of equalization, I was like, OK, so you're going to take really poor people 
and put them in a rich country and they're going to send remittances back which is going to drain the rich mm-hmm. country. Yes. So it's actually they're saying by default we want to make the rich countries poorer. Yes. Mm-hmm. We want to impoverish them. That's their mm-hmm. stated plan. It feels intentional. Are they really that dumb or are they just marching to like is this part of like we know we need a great reset. I'm trying to like plug this in and make sense of the larger tapestry because to me it looks like it ends in disaster at the individual level and then at the nation level. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's meant to have a good outcome for the United States at all. Um, I think, honestly, uh, that the border situation on the U.S.-Mexico border in particular is entirely intentional. Um, And nothing has been done to fix it, even by, you know, an administration that came to power campaigning specifically on that issue. And I think it's because it's something that is much bigger um, than the United States itself, because this is something that's happening in a big way in Europe. And it's also happening within Latin America. Um, I live in Chile and, you know, there's a big border crisis here that is on a smaller scale than what's going on in the U.S., but it's it's similar as well. And Chile is, of course, the most, uh, you know, historically prosperous uh, South American country. And, you know, there's facilitations of it that are odd, and it's a big political issue here as well. So there's definitely this equalizing uh, tendency uh, via migration is going on in various sectors of the world. Uh, Obviously, it has a particular, um, it has particular agendas, I wouldn't say just one agenda, but agendas tied to it. So I think sort of this Mm -hmm. global remittance system is is part of this financial system to come, which a lot of the um, narratives for CBDCs, among other things, and banking the unbanked and all of this stuff is uh, a lot of it uh, uses remittance payments. you know, as as its justification. Uh, but I also think one of the main goals behind this uncontrolled migration phenomena uh, is related to the push for uh, people to accept digital IDs and biometric identification to be like, oh, we need to know who's a citizen and who isn't because we have all these people here now. And the only way to do that is to move to this new system of ID, specifically in the U.S. where ID is relatively decentralized and it's, you know, by state, not a national, except in the case of a passport, but not everyone in the U.S. has a passport and a passport isn't required for going around to do your daily things. So I think, um, Digital ID is going to be definitely a part of the solution offered to the migration situation. And then I also think um, uh, there's probably some other things uh, in there as well um, in in terms of, um, you know, destabilizing uh, urban centers and, you know, just uh, destabilization in general. That way the state can come in and offer various solutions, whether it's digital ID or really whatever they want to stabilize. And that could be things from increased police state behavior. You know, it could really include a lot of different, uh, a lot of different things. Um, uh, But I think digital ID is going to be a big part of it. And I think, you know, sort of this banking, the unbanked financial, uh, you know, making this global interoperable uh, cross-border finance system of which CBDCs are a big part, but definitely not the only part. And, you know, the BIS going through these MCBDC trials, multiple, multi-CBDC trials and all of this, it's all about building this um, global system of interoperable CBDCs and also, you know, their private sector equivalents like deposit tokens and stable coins uh, to be, you know, sort of traded at mass and then, you know, surveillable and also programmable uh, probably. So they, you know, directly intersect with things like carbon markets and all of the stuff that is being developed, uh, you know, in tandem with all of this. Um, So, you know, definitely um, I think the migration issue ties in with all of those things. 
Um, and, and probably some more. I mean, if I were to think more about it, I could probably come, come up with a few more because I think, uh, you know, regardless of the crisis that's being manufactured, you know, they can oftentimes peg really any solution they want to it, you know, yeah. as, as long as the narrative yeah. is there. No, here's the part that confuses me a little. I mean, so, well, listen, if somebody says they're going to do something and then it happens, maybe they did it, right? So 2016, the WF comes out with their famous little one and a half minute video, you'll own nothing and be happy, right? Number mm -hmm. eight in that series caught me the most, though. It said Western values will be tested to the breaking point. Fast forward, this migrant issue, it's clearly breaking societies. They're overwhelming areas culturally, right? In Europe, mm -hmm. in the United States. I am, Whitney, I'm unaware of any efforts to load up boats and put them into China or India or Malaysia. I mean, it feels like this feels like a very like what the West is under assault, but maybe that's just because I live in the West. But that's what it feels like to me right now. Do, do you have a like, why are they targeting the West at this juncture? Yeah. So I think if you are the powers that be that want increased global governance, you have to force various value changes. And in order to force those value changes, you have to demonize the countries that have the values that you want to replace. So uh, the West, uh, America needs to be the bad guy. And I'm not saying it's not the bad guy. U.S. empire is obviously insanely bad in many ways. Um, but there, there's going to be a global effort at some point, whether post-World War III or whatever, to demonize you know, values like individual liberty and free markets and all of these things. Um, and I think you know, showing, making the West increasingly degenerate is going to be a way to point the figure, not just at those countries, but at those values and say, these values don't work. Um, I think that's part of uh, what's going on here to an extent. Well, I, I consider one of the core values that you might hold as a Westerner is that parents have rights and have a say over how the children are raised in their own household. I saw with uh, an interview you did with Glenn Beck a long, not a long time, but a while ago, and I thought it was just brilliant the way you framed it, that, that a person you said, to paraphrase, who has who is unsure of their own identity at a core level is obviously a very controllable person or something like that. Can you yeah. can you explain <laughs> that further? I thought I just really love that point. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of efforts, uh, particularly to target younger generations to sort of have fluid identities. And I mean, probably among the American right, the most consciousness of that is, you know, related specifically to gender identities. But I think it, it you know, fits into a lot. They've tried to make it fit into a lot of other categories. And, you know, frankly, if no one can really uh, know who they are or they're not allowed to identify as what they feel they are, then it's very hard to, um, you know, be very grounded. And I think, you know, by having that fluidity sort of uh, programmed into some of these younger generations, the powers that be can manipulate them more easily from one side to the other. Um, and they're not necessarily firmly anchored in a set of, of values or even, you know, uh, labels or whatever about themselves, that it's all subject to change, which makes, you know, them uh, more easily guided one way or the other or herded maybe is the better word by by these power elite figures that have spent decades and decades and funded yeah. a litany of psychologists to, you know, weaponize this stuff against us, frankly. Yeah, I read... Um as much as I could stomach of Kissinger's 58 PhD thesis. And in there, he discusses why revolutions succeed. And they succeed because the revolutionaries push so fast, so far that people are holding the status quo. By the time they wrap their minds around action one, you're on action four, right? So this feels like a, a this feels like a, a, I feel like I'm in what Brett Weinstein calls, we're in this Cartesian crisis. I don't know who to trust. 
I don't know that I can even trust, you know, something I see online anymore. I have to source like every image, every video. I don't know. We don't know who to trust. So we have this breakdown, but it feels multi-pronged, right? So they're coming after our children's identity. They're reshaping words, right? Remember under COVID, we lost the ability, like what's herd immunity? Oh, vaccine needs to be redefined. Like they, they're constantly yeah. redefining words. So we can't have a reasonable mm -hmm. conversation, right? Sure. Formerly captured territory. Here's what this word means. Oh no, equity means something different now, right? Um, and, uh, but, you know, and then Biden's draining the SPR and then we have no borders. Can you be a nation mm -hmm. if you don't even have a border? On mm -hmm. and on and on. Um, do you see this as like, is this tapestry of just accidental, again, accidental versus intentional, but this looks intentional. This, this is what I would be doing yeah. if I was writing a fantasy dystopian screenplay for how you take a country down. Yeah, no, I definitely think uh, it's intentional. And I think it's part of this broader effort that I mentioned earlier that sort of became pronounced in the early 70s, this whole trans ideological corporation concept, and that we're really at a point where um, there are unprecedented efforts to create a system of global governance. And I think mm -hmm. um, the dichotomy that they're trying to make, and I, again, think it's a false dichotomy, is we can either have the current existing unipolar world order, Western dominated, or have this multipolar world order order, which is uh, going to be dominated by the BRICS countries. And of course, within BRICS, the dominant countries are Russia and China. Um, and so the idea, it, you know, it's being framed even, you know, upon independent media, you know, there's some people that claim that the multipolarity model is better because it's more inclusive and more countries have a voice. But ultimately, um, the same 2030 agenda or Agenda 2030, the Sustainable Development Goals embraced by the EU and the Biden administration, what have you, are also embraced by the BRICS countries that are supposed to represent a challenge to the Western order. So maybe there's a few more seats at the table under the multipolar world order, but in terms of the world that will come in uh, through it, it's the same as if the unipolar world order continues uh, on its way, essentially, um, because the assist the sustainable development goals have been developed essentially by bankers. Um, you could describe mm -hmm. it, or I would describe it as a, a global Wall Street coup, essentially. Well, not necessarily Wall Street, but you know, transnational finance. Um, it's it's a I mean, you have people like Mark Carney, former Goldman Sachs, former head of Bank of England, Bank of Canada, Financial Stability Board, a aider and mm -hmm. a better of HSBC's uh, money laundering for drug cartels. He's the person that's in charge of climate action for the United Nations. Um, their other point man is Mike Bloomberg, former Solomon Brothers, former mayor of New York, uh, billionaire guy. And if you think these people care about the environment and sustainable development and building a more inclusive world, um, I, I'm sorry, but you have been had. Um, you, you know, Larry Fink is in this group too, and he doesn't I mean, to think that he wants to make a more inclusive world is insane. He's interested in increasing the amount of assets that BlackRock manages and pretty much only that. So these are the people that are essentially behind a lot of the net zero plans, behind a lot of the other SDG plans that essentially move us from a, a, the model you know, the free market capitalist model into more this this technocratic model where, you know, uh, every commodity, everything is going to be tokenized. And you've seen Larry Fink in the past couple of days uh, be very open about that uh, following the approval of the uh, BlackRock's Bit uh, Bitcoin ETF, for example, talking about the tokenization revolution and all of this. Um, 
but there's an effort here to do to take this, you know, much farther than it's ever been taken before and to essentially just not uh, not just tokenize, you know, existing assets or traditional assets, um, but also create new asset classes like natural assets, all these natural asset corporations that have sort of been in the news lately and have sort of, you know, received some pushback. But there's definitely a lot of efforts underway to essentially uh, tokenize the whole planet, increase the amount of uh, assets in the existing economy by being like now this lake is an asset now this uh this forest is an asset and all of this stuff tokenize fractionalize it and you know basically create this insane new uh financial system that's different than previous financial systems but everything including nature and humans will be tokenized and traded like financial products and that's essentially what a lot of this is uh, leading to, and you have most of the countries on the world, those that are pursuing Agenda 2030, essentially leading us uh, into that. And so, you know, at some level, I think the geopolitical push and pull uh, between, you know, BRICS and, and the West is real. Uh, but I think, you know, at the higher levels, they ultimately agree um, on the goals. So I don't really think, um, you know, one is necessarily a, a true effective challenge to the other. And if you're against the ambitions of the SDGs and Agenda 2030, um, then you should be against them, regardless of if they're being championed by Russia and China or the United States and the EU. Ultimately, it leads us to the same place, um, and um, it, which is going to financialize and, and tokenize everything, but also surveil everything to an unprecedented extent. Um, and in, mm -hmm. increasingly uses, uh, you know, debt slavery, uh, you know, the uh, Mark Carney and, and Fink and all of these guys um, under the auspices of the UN talked about reimagining the World Bank and the IMF, all the multilateral development banks uh, for the purpose of basically using debt to finance the SDGs and doing all these things like debt for climate swaps, debt for nature swaps, uh, which are essentially, you know, land grabs and, and all sorts of things, uh, framing it as, you know, necessary to save the planet. And maybe that justification works for the left, but I think it would be naive to assume that they aren't going to retool um, the talking points to appeal to the right. Um, I think that's definitely going to be happening. And if you look at Fink himself, you know, he's gone, he's tried to go away from being the point man for ESG and all of this towards a guy that's saying like, look how profitable this is going to be for us. And you can have a part of the riches, uh, the riches by tokenizing your land and putting it on this platform where it can be traded and, and whatever, like you can have a piece of, of all this wealth and, and whatever. I think that's how they're going to try and, um, and, and frame it. And I think people need to be very, uh, very aware because, you know, the efforts to manipulate us to acquiesce to the system um, are unprecedented. And I think ultimately, if you have a good grasp of what they want to enact on the global stage, regardless of the justifications or the political figures they use or influencers and media that they try to use to sell this to you, if you are firm in your opposition to these agendas, uh, then you'll be able to sort through the nonsense. Because as you said, you know, all the stuff coming out on Online is increasingly uh, just so psyop after psyop after psyop, and you mm -hmm. know it's hard to know who who to trust and who to believe, what have you. But if you know that the end goal uh, is is global governance, mass surveillance, the end of privacy, all of that, you can look at who is pushing those agendas and say no. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to say no. You have to know what your red lines are, and you have to make it a 
about trusting your red lines and trusting where you stand, not so much trusting this political savior or that political savior or this media influencer, which I think a lot of people um, have been doing. And I think it's definitely time for another model, particularly when it comes to U.S. presidential politics, because how many times can we vote for the lesser of two evils and have a good outcome? You know, it's just it's never happened and it's not going to keep happening. And, you know, all this um all of these efforts, you know, in the case of Trump to like explain away um, his decisions last time and act like it's going to be different this time. We can't wait to see what's going to happen this time. The situation has come to a head arguably already, and it's up to people to find local solutions um, and build something with their communities that will help them protect, you know, help everyone in that community protect themselves against all these stressors and crises that are to come, uh, because waiting for the right guy to get in the White House, regardless of who he is and whatever intention and motivation he has, one guy in the White House is not going to solve all of this, because arguably, you know, the president is really a figurehead, because at this point, the U.S. is so bureaucratic and massive, it doesn't really matter who gets elected, you know, every four years in a, in a November. Uh, the agenda is going to continue. Um, and I think people need to really get wise about that. And particularly now where, you know, presidential politics is pushed to the forefront of both mainstream and independent media, um, you know, it's increasing. It, it really has been for some time a circus at the end of the day. And I think we should be paying attention to these really real issues and uh, increasingly focus on solutions, which I think, you know, finds very little uh, airtime and in independent media these days, which I think is uh, definitely a trend I'd like to see uh, reversed because it's definitely time to start building something parallel to this Agenda 2030 stuff. Uh, because a lot of the way this digital ID stuff, CBDCs or their private sector equivalents are going to be forced onto the people is when, uh, you know, the food supply is un under attack or, you know, there's some sort of crisis there. And the only way to get your rations is to uh, follow the same model that's been rolled out by the UN's World Food Program, which is essentially the same model by uh, produced by Sam Altman's WorldCoin. Uh, scan your eyeball and you have a digital ID tied to your eyeball and a digital wallet. And every time you check out, you scan your eyeball at the cash register and it deducts um, the money of uh, the cost of what you purchased uh, from your you know, rations wallet. And if you don't submit to that system, you don't eat. And they, the World Food Program does this to millions of refugees every day uh, in Ukraine and the Middle East and elsewhere. And the plan is to have this happen essentially uh, everywhere. So yep. people need to be very vigilant. I agree. And thank you for, for bringing up you know my favorite point, which is everybody needs to become resilient. You need to understand where your food is coming from, have some stored mm -hmm. up garden if you can, make sure you have some wealth outside of this banking system, gold, yes. silver. But you have to, the, the biggest thing, like when we look at like the Zimbabwe decline when they had their hyperinflation, when the dust settled years later, they somebody asked the question, Philip um, uh, Pullman asked the question, he said, uh, Philip Haslin asked the question, he said, Who's, who thrived? And the answer was people who had deep social networks. It was your social huh? capital that actually was the mm -hmm. determinant of success because you can store some food, but it runs out, right? I mean, over, over time, huh. you have to, it's who you knew and how well you could trust them. So in the time we have left, I'd like to talk though, because it feels very, you know, they've got a big, they've got all the chips seems to be arrayed. Like they've got all the power, they, the they, but they're afraid of some things. And so I have a rule in life now. If they want me to do it, I don't do it. And if they don't want me to do it, I do it. And it's a pretty good rule. It mostly works for me, right? 
Um, so what are they afraid of? I know we've been talking about it. They're afraid of information. They, they don't like information mm-hmm. they don't control. So they miss mal disinformation. We know they don't want us gathering and speaking to each other. They don't like the trucker protests. They don't like people coming together. They don't mm-hmm. want us to have defined borders or even a defined sense of self, as, as you discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They're definitely afraid of free and fair elections. They hate those. Right. You know, um, both parties, sure. by the way, I don't think there's two parties. It's one party to me at this stage. But yeah. maybe you have a different position. I don't. Um, Same position. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, and and I can it's retail level like, oh, this president, that president. I'm like, that's that's not the wholesale part. That's the retail part of the story. So so where do you detect that they're actually afraid of things and and how do we leverage those? Yeah, so I think information is a big part of it. And I think um, there's a lot of different ways to try and use that to our advantage. I think it might be helpful for some people in independent media in the United States to try and stage some sort of low cost return to print, uh, because obviously a lot of the efforts that they're making um, are in the digital realm uh, and trying to get us increasingly dependent on that. And I think physical medium uh, media is is going to be important. Um, and I, I think it's you know, uh, a good choice too, because, you know, people that read actual physical books, I think there was a study about how that's, you know, better for cognition long-term than constantly reading everything on screens. Um, Mm -hmm. so I, you know, I think that would be uh, good. And I think also, you know, there's this, uh, definite effort to regulate the internet. And once that happens, the the internet of today, uh, will no longer exist. And so I think while the internet, even though it's, definitely worse off uh, than it probably was several years ago. Um, Now is definitely a good time to make offline libraries of things that you Mm -hmm. think will be useful, whether it's for things like traditional skills, so you can homestead at some point in the future, or, you know, about actual world history or really any topic of interest, if you can store that offline in a hard drive. So when you want to go and access that information, you don't have to be like, oh, dang it, I have to have a digital ID to access YouTube now or something like Mm -hmm. that. You won't be in that in that type of position. So I definitely think people um, should be trying to make essentially information stores your own personal library of Alexandria um, going forward. And there's also some interesting efforts um, to try and, I guess, sort of um, use infrastructure that the elites plan to use going forward to try and allow broad access to information. Uh, there's an interesting effort uh, to use the, the Bitcoin blockchain, for example. Um, mm-hmm. This Some of these new, um, they haven't been programmed yet, but some people have sort of thought out the mechanisms for how to essentially create, you know, basically a WikiLeaks 2.0 and have like information publicly available to everyone by publishing directly onto Bitcoin and stuff like that going forward. Um, I think, you know, if obvious efforts uh, by people like Larry Fink and others to have Bitcoin be an important asset class going forward in the financial realm. So in order for them to stop the information being published there, they would have to nix all of their plans to co-op Bitcoin and use it as an asset class to back up all of these different things. So that's an interesting uh, case of sort of, you know, using uh, the same technology they want to use essentially against them to allow broad public access to information they don't want in the hands of people. Um, And there's, you know, different ways to uh, I, I think tackle that, whether it's by building, you know, uh, getting off of big tech and starting to use more like open source alternatives, not necessarily tied to big tech. You know, there's a lot that um, we can do to try and, you know, uh, get around these issues. But ultimately, you know, we have to get creative about 
the information war and the information space um, because it's definitely um, one of our, our best assets and tools in terms of waking people up and trying to stop or mitigate a lot of what's happening is to try and raise awareness about it, which is obviously through the distribution um, of information. And so I think, you know, there, we have to get um, a lot more creative about that because traditionally uh, we've been very uh, focused on these platforms that are very much captured by these Silicon Valley entities that are part of what's happening. And uh, we can't continue to be completely dependent on them if we want to stop what they're doing as it relates to censorship and in this you know, broader information war. Um, and I think there's, you know, in terms of building parallel systems, we should really be doing that on every, every level, not just, you know, for information and, mm -hmm. and big tech. And, you know, as you said earlier, it's really all about building robust local communities that can uh, be resilient and withstand a lot of what's to come. Absolutely. Very well said. So, uh, Whitney Webb, thank you so much for your time today. What are you working on next? Where do people go to follow you? Uh, well, all my work is published right now at unlimitedhangout.com. Um, I contribute occasionally to outlets like uh, The Last American Vagabond uh, and also Bitcoin Magazine, um, among some other places. Um, well, we're doing some stuff. Well, I, I recently put out an article on um, how CBDCs are likely to be implemented implemented in the U.S. and touched on that a little bit in terms of uh, it's likely to be, uh, you know, sort of more related to Wall Street than the Fed. But of course, if you're familiar with how the Fed works, it's owned by Wall Street anyway. So not mm -hmm. really that different at the end of the day. Um, and it, how it relates to FTX, the collapse of FTX, uh, Sam Bankman fried and some of his ambitions to create basically a, a U.S. stable coin, among other things and trying to get the DNC and, and regulators to be on his side with that and because they're going to king make which ones you know make it in who gets to be the digital dollar and, and what have you um, and I think people are kind of naive that if we can just defeat central bank issue, issued currencies in the sense of uh, you know uh, direct issued CBDCs then we win but if you uh, for people that actually have looked at what's going on, there's a lot of different ways that they're trying to essentially create the same system under different names um, so I guess I've been doing a lot of stuff uh, related to finance. I have some uh, some Epstein stories coming forward, uh, coming out in in over the next uh, month or two. A lot of which are related to financial stuff and his activities in the Virgin Islands, among other things. Um, and hopefully, some you know uh, other impactful pieces coming forward. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for all the work you do in the world. You've got a lot of fans on uh, within my my audience and. Uh with my fiance. Uh, she said to say hi um, and that she really <laughs> admires you. Well, so <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that's Evie. So thank you very much for your, for your time today. And, and I hope we can do this again sometime. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks.